Universal basic income is gaining momentum around the world, including in Canada, where the Senate is currently considering Bill S-233, which would require the federal government to develop a national framework for implementing a guaranteed livable income. There are now dozens of UBI pilot projects underway in cities around the world. So what does the evidence tell us about universal basic income programs and their impact on people, communities, and the environment? Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Pugh. On today's episode, we talked to Sean Klein, who's the director of Stanford University's Basic Income Lab. Sean has been following UBI pilots in America and around the world very, very closely, and he did a really amazing job of explaining how these pilots work and the evidence on UBI so far. I I don't know. I don't want to, like, show my hand too early, but I'm very in favor of UBI. I was so excited to have this conversation finally. I mean, it feels like kind of late for us. I I feel, I mean, we've talked about it in passing on so many other topics, but to finally sit down with somebody who's an expert in this, yes, I was jamming. (laughs) Yeah, I weirdly felt that like one of the most interesting parts of the conversation, which is not at all what I expected, was where Sean was talking about how the UBI pilots work because I realized I'd never given any thought to that. And like these projects have to be so smart in terms of getting around ethical issues um, because they're looking at people's like daily finances and things like that. So that was really cool. And he also, I think, did a really good job of explaining in simple terms what's the deal with UBI evidence and, you know, debunking a lot of myths like nobody's going to work anymore. <laughs> Yes, I hate that one. (laughs) And in unrelated news, I guess, actually, no, it is kind of related. We started a Patreon. Please help us. (laughs) I finally started a Patreon. And when we get to, I'm just, I'm setting the bar low when we get to to 10 subscribers, uh, we'll, we'll give away a book or maybe we'll just give away a bunch of books. Kristen keeps making me buy books. I just bought four books today. <laughs> I'm propping up the book like industry single-handed, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so as like a reward for signing up, uh, we were, we're recording video footage for the first time in four years of ourselves recording these intros. Okay, thanks. If you enjoy this episode, please also leave a five-star <laughs> review. It costs nothing. Let's go! <laughs> First of all, just to get us started, a big question. What is universal basic income? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's typically thought of as a regular cash payment to individuals for an entire community. That's entirely unconditional. So it means that it could be in a certain political jurisdiction. It could be in a country. It could be in a state or a province. Uh, that's typically how it's how it's viewed. Fantastic. And how does that sort of differ from other kinds of social assistance or social services that, like, other cash payments people might get through the government? Well, the primary difference is the conditionality, right? So, you know, whether it's in Canada or the United States or in across Western Europe, the social safety nets in these countries are typically very proscribed benefits of some sort, right? And they're often means tested, meaning you have to be below a certain income or you have to be from a certain area or this or that. And they're often multiple conditions, which 
I think some people believe is wise use of public funds. The problem is all those conditions typically are very onerous and problematic for people who just need assistance, right? So it means that those programs aren't realizing their their intention or their purpose. And it means many people don't take them up. So our universal basic income is entirely unconditional. That's really, uh, there are kind of two levels to think about this. On one hand, the universality means that everybody gets it. Uh, and you don't means test. You don't determine who gets it, who doesn't get it, right? Uh, and there are benefits of that we can come back to. Uh, and the other is that what's provided is entirely unrestricted or unconditional, meaning you can spend it however you want. I don't know about anybody else, but if you've ever tried to get anything done through social assistance, like the the barriers to entry are so high that often the people who are most vulnerable that need assistance the most are just like incapable of filling in 1,200 forms and standing in line at Service Canada for four hours and going through the, like, if you're already suffering, you know what I mean? Like, here's a whole bunch of bureaucratic nastiness that you have to get through to get everything that you need, right? <laughs> Annie Lowry, who's a uh, writer for The Atlantic magazine, has kind of coined this term time tax, which is sort of a way of sort of describing all of the time. And it's not just time. It's kind of deeply psychological time. It's heavy, burdensome time that you have to spend chasing down paperwork or proof that you're worthy of these benefits, right? And so it means, I think, to your point uh, a moment ago, that many people just don't take it up and they don't get the assistance they need. Or it's pretty shocking how often people actually aren't able to take up benefits because of a small administrative error, something that just haunts them, right? Uh, and these are people oftentimes in dire straits. They're, in a, they're at a point when they don't have a lot of resources. They may have children. They may be trying to hold hold down one or two or more part-time jobs. It doesn't allow for a lot of time <laughs> to get the assistance you need. You want to get on with your life. And that's, I think, what's important is that we're all in that situation at some point, right? We're kind of squeezed and we're facing stress and anxiety and our mental bandwidth is very narrow at those times to really be able to take on a lot more than all what we already have. So that's the challenge, I think. On one hand, the social safety net is essential for millions of Canadians and millions of Americans and Europeans. And so to tear it down would be doing a disservice to all those people who need it. And yet it needs dramatic reform. And I think that's kind of a point unto itself UBI presents an interesting contrast to that because UBI, while it's not an existing policy now, it presents a challenge, I think, to the way in which we've crafted these safety nets and offers a possible alternative, if not wholesale, at least kind of in spirit and in part. And I think we see in North America unconditional cash payments that surfaced during COVID uh, already starting to kind of whittle away or kind of pick, pick at the existing safety net and challenge it and upend people's thinking about what's possible and what's good for those who need it at the time they need it. Yeah, certainly um, in like the Canadian context, the like the CERB, the emergency benefit here, it corresponded to like a historic drop in poverty and inequality. So is that happening elsewhere too? Similar things happened? Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of remarkable. The child tax credit, which is a child allowance that America has but doesn't do as well as Canada or Europe for that matter, was made unconditional and provided to almost all parents, 90 plus percent of parents across America during COVID, uh, during 2022. 
And we saw a historic drop in child poverty. I mean, not just at the margins. I mean, like a wholesale drop that we have not seen before. And then it ended. Uh, and what we saw was what you'd expect, a dramatic rise in child poverty. And so it's actually a really stark case where even the most conservative person, I think, is challenged to say that's a good path for public policy. Something that's so proven that historically has had fairly broad political support comes and goes and we see a direct immediate impact on children. And I mean, I think like we've sort of gotten to two of the really big arguments for UBI, you know, the weaknesses of the existing system, the potential to reduce poverty. But what are some of the other sort of goals and objectives of this sort of policy idea? Well, I think what's interesting before I go to some direct examples is it's almost like a diamond in that you can look at it for so many different angles and you can project onto it sort of your goals and aspirations for society in a way that you can't for many social social policies. So, uh, for example, to say UBI kind of begs the question, are you talking about the equivalent of a, a kitten or a lion? Does the details really matter? In fact, could be pretty regressive. It could leave, if you wiped out the whole safety net in Canada now and replaced it with unconditional cash for everyone, you could leave millions of people worse off, right? Or you could leave everyone better off. Uh, it just depends on how it's crafted. So I think that's what makes it kind of interesting. I think the historic conundrum is that a UBI that's sufficient is often perceived to be unaffordable. And a UBI that's affordable is often perceived to be insufficient. So it's like we're sort of challenged. So in the meantime, we kind of conceive of a UBI that could lift everyone up. And I think some of the perspectives on it, the diverse perspectives are really inspiring to a lot of different people. So for example, some people believe unconditional regular cash payments to individuals could sort of liberate women in abusive relationships, could allow them to escape those relationships because the evidence is right, quite clear that Abusive relationships are typically abusive on a lot of different in a lot of different ways, including financial abuse. Credit cards taken out in the names of women, bank accounts kind of seconded or controlled by male counterparts or female counterparts for that matter. Um, so I think having cash in some ways provides an escape hatch for those who are stuck in a relationship because of financial means, among others. Uh, that's one. Another is, you know, some people perceive UBI as the ultimate kind of strike fund. Uh, if your job sucks uh, and you're, you don't have many alternatives, what if you had unconditional cash to give you the freedom to negotiate with your employer or just bolt, right? Go find something better and find something perhaps that pays less that the UBI tops up such that you could provide more care to you know, aging parents or children or neighbors, or engage in civic activity. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless, right? You could do nonprofit work. You can do all kinds of things that doesn't tie you to this sort of narrow notion of working full-time or more under a capitalist system. Where to go next? There's another one that's about kind of the ultimate entrepreneur's seed funding. We all, many of us have ideas. I mean, you two have this, this awesome podcast. You know, what if you wanted to take it to greater scale? What if you want to build it out? Uh, but you needed funding to do that. This could be the replacement for what would otherwise be a very difficult and sometimes impossible uh, effort to go to a bank to get funding or to save up a lump sum. So I think there are a lot of possibilities for UBI. Um, and that's what's such a, so interesting about it is it kind of sparks people's imagination. Once they get past 
the idea that it's completely radical and crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit sort of about some other societal trends that are maybe making UBI particularly relevant right now. Yeah, I think, you know, we've all experienced COVID somewhat differently, but we've all experienced it. I think is we're really going to, well, we're already looking back, I think, on the past three years as a kind of fundamental milestone in, in our lives, right? And I think at least three dynamics um, over the past three or so years have fed into sort of a new understanding of what unconditional cash could be and what a UBI could be and how it could be possible and desirable. I think one is just a creeping level of economic insecurity. That's been simmering for decades. In fact, since the late 1970s, I think we've seen a dramatic increase in sort of the precarity of work, the precarity of our financial lives that really spawns a lot of anxiety. Then we had this global pandemic that virtually no one anticipated. Uh, It scared us all to death and caused a lot of death. And from that public health crisis came an economic crisis for many. I just put made live a graph on the Stanford Basic Income Guaranteed Income Pilots Dashboard that shows sort of a spike in unemployment in the United States and in Canada and elsewhere uh, just in around March 15th or whenever Shelter in Place was called. And then uh, another line for inflation. Uh, and you can really see sort of the dramatic impacts of those uh, in relation to a whole bunch of pilots that have started. But so we have creeping inequality and economic insecurity. We've got this public health crisis that created an economic crisis for people. And then in North America and across the world, we've seen, we've seen kind of ubiquitous cell phones capture the murder of people of color, particularly Black people at the hands of police. And I think that sort of really catalyzed a new fresh anger about racial injustice and the economic injustice that follows that. And what's interesting in the U.S. context during COVID, you know, we often think of government as really slothful, right? They can hardly get anything done. They move super slowly. But it's pretty striking that during the first year of COVID, the U.S. government pushed out nearly a trillion dollars and they pushed out a tremendous amount of unconditional cash at a speed that we never would have anticipated the government could. And I think what's interesting about that is it sort of makes you think, well, it's funny, you know, you think of government as slow, but when they have the political will, when our representatives really see an urgent need, they can act and they will act. So I think that sort of tempered many people's concern about what unconditional cash could do, the idea that it would make everyone stop working. Well, definitely during COVID, that was not happening. And that it would make people kind of lazy because we're all inherently lazy, right? So I think all of those sort of fed into a new kind of understanding of what unconditional cash could be. I think it lowered the concern that it's this radical policy. Uh, Even though it goes back hundreds of years, I think every time it surfaces sort of uh, peaks in a given century or a decade, uh, we have the kind of newfound anxiety about it. But in fact, it's, it's really a mainstay of some social safety nets that are actually many people don't realize. And it's something that can be used during, during times of crisis. What I think many people who are sort of new to this idea of UBI don't appreciate is that unconditional cash has been a, um, something that's been in play across the develop, the global South, Latin America, Africa, and Asia for decades. In fact, it's one of the single most researched things there is across all of those regions. 
So we have decades of evidence already, both about unconditional as well as conditional cash, that's positive. Now, many lawmakers in Canada uh, and the US and Europe don't really relate to examples from Kenya or Tanzania or Uganda. So North American examples, I think, are much more powerful. And in Canada, one of the most powerful was this um, MINCOM, it's Manitoba experiment, which uniquely provided cash to a small town. It saturated the town. So we don't have examples of that anywhere else, actually, except for um, one case of an um, Indian reservation. And in those cases, you have the opportunity to look at positive and negative outcomes, not only among individuals and families, but across the community. So what was interesting about MINCOM in the 70s is we saw, for example, a drop in labor market participation. And on its face, that's something that kind of strikes terror in the hearts of hearts and minds of, of policymakers, right? They somehow think that's going to erode society. But when you dig a little deeper, what we find is that labor market participation dropped among young people who had dropped out of high school. So they went back to school to finish school. And I don't think anyone would argue that's a bad outcome. The other important one is that mothers of young children actually dropped out of the labor force to some degree to care for their child more. So again, those are two examples that I think are hard, uh, regardless of your political persuasion, to argue are bad things. In the North American context more recently, we have less evidence. Um, but we, what we have are a whole slew of pilots an explosion of pilots, in fact, in the United States. Yeah, I was looking at your map today. There's so many. <laughs> yeah, it's really kind of shocking. And I think three or five years ago, we never would have guessed we were going to be here, right? I mean, maybe it took COVID opening up this this window of opportunity that kind of made the impo- seemingly impossible possible. Why? I have a question about pilots. H- how many do you need to prove that something works? Like if every single pilot is a success, at what point do you stop doing pilots and start rolling it out? (laughs) Yeah, I think you're not alone in that question. I think I have that question. Many others have that question. And they're still coming, by the way. Literally every week or two, uh, I learn about a new one. Just here in Silicon Valley, uh, two counties are about to launch, each launch one. One of the counties already has three going. So I think it's to some extent, it's sort of a flavor of the day. Um, It's something that coming out of COVID, people feel like an urgent response to urgent need. The good news is that the 30, very soon 31 pilots that the Stanford Basic Income Lab tracks on its guaranteed income pilots dashboard will be revealing all this this evidence that's coming. Uh, Over the next six to 12 months, we're going to have a tremendous amount of evidence. In fact, I just saw a uh, as yet published kind of report for one of those pilots that's just coming out. So we have evidence in North American context that's coming uh, that I think will say a lot about the evidence we that will complement the evidence we have from Latin America, Asia, uh, and Africa, and the 70s evidence, which says that labor market participation typically doesn't drop. In fact, it goes up because people have more time to look for a job or they have more kind of wherewithal to, to the resources to kind of do a search to find a better job. Or it might drop off somewhat, again, like the examples I mentioned, where someone's going back to school or someone needs to care for their parents or children. We mentioned poverty and inequality. It seems kind of obvious on its face that giving people money would reduce poverty, but you still need evidence too. And sometimes what's important about rigorous research is it uncovers unintended consequences, right? So we don't always know, in addition to the positive outcomes, whether there might be negative outcomes or kind of spillover effects on like community members. So that's, I think, just a 
important plug for research, even when it just seems blatantly obvious. But the good news is poverty does go down. Um, in Alaska, we have an interesting situation where the Alaska Dividend Fund, which has been in place 30 plus years and was signed into law by the then Republican governor, the governor from a conservative party, it's been in place so long. It's an annual payout to all residents of Alaska, including children, individuals in a family. So it's represented a pretty solid chunk of money every year for people in Alaska, allowing some to go on vacations who, who wouldn't otherwise be able to go on vacation to put food on the table and all the other things that people have needs for. But because it's provided to everyone and given the nature, arguably the, the regressive nature of the tax system in America, including in Alaska, it also means that while low-income people have tended to use that Alaska dividend to pay for basic needs and keep from falling into poverty, those who have higher incomes, they don't have to spend it right away. They can invest it in stocks and bonds and housing and other things that then yield a profit later. So there has been some research to suggest that it may be increasing inequality in that context. Now, there are responses to that. You can address the tax code. You can tax it back from people who got it who don't need it. There are all kinds of things you can do. But I think it's just a sort of a reminder that uh, there are consequences for that. And it means like means that we'll have, we need other social policies to sort of mitigate income equality as well. Before I, I finish, I just want to mention a few other areas of positive outcomes, physical and mental health. I think during COVID, you know, this theme of mental health really rose to the surface. It's obviously been a a really important theme for a long time, but it's also been something that's been mental issue, health issues are often stigmatized and things for which people have some shame. So I think that that's mental health issues so widespread among our populations in North America is really an important recognition that's getting, we're getting better at recognizing that. And money doesn't solve all those problems, but it certainly kind of allows you to breathe more easily and let go of some of the anxiety and stressors that lack of money creates, kind of exaggerating or amplifying those mental health problems. Um, and then physical health as well. Uh, we see food insecurity, for example, uh, improve, which of course directly affects children, which directly affects child brain development, which of course can alter someone's life trajectory uh, and their lifetime earnings. So there's the implications are huge. Educational outcomes, we've, we have positive outcomes there. Um, psychological and social outcomes. What's interesting is um, the pilot that kind of kicked off this proliferation of pilots in the United States in recent times was in Stockton, California, which I can tell you is about three hours from where I live uh, in Western United States. It's an underdog town. It filed for bankruptcy a couple uh, decades or so ago. It's a place where a lot of people are struggling. And uh, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people commute two to three hours each way to the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area for jobs. So it's it's someplace where I think a pilot, or though in this case they call it a demonstration of guaranteed income or basic income, was really powerful. Uh, and it wasn't a huge study. It was a small one, but it was still a rigorous study. And there we learned that full-time employment did increase among those who received the cash versus those who didn't. We found that um, the cash reduced Income volatility for families it seems kind of obvious again, right? You have money coming in, you don't have these spikes. But what's really important, again, is that you can count on paying bills when they come due, right? You're not kind of playing the shell game with your money that puts you in a very vulnerable place because if you miss a payment, that then can affect your credit score, can have 
far-reaching implications. You can have your car repossessed that doesn't allow you a way to get to work. So that's a really powerful one. Um, it did demonstrate improved health and well-being among those who got the cash. Uh, it reduced depression and anxiety. And interestingly, and I think we're going to see a little more research findings around this, it diminished feelings of financial scarcity and led to people perceiving new opportunities, choice, and allowed them to set goals and take risks. So rather than, I mean, probably all three of us have had times in our lives when we're feeling a sense of scarcity or anxiety, and our ability to plan is very, very small, right, and very narrow. But when we have sort of financial wherewithal, it allows us to kind of think, you know, a month out, six months out, a year out, we can think about, well, what career might we want to go in? What kind of new or better job might we want to pursue? So again, that has implications that many people don't fully appreciate, particularly for those from low wealth and low income households. Yeah, you're moving out of like day-to-day survival mode and able to think about what it'd be like to thrive. Definitely. One thing that we haven't talked about so far, and I mean, you've covered so many themes, but uh, I had I had seen a Finnish uh, UBI pilot that had talked also about sort of like public trust. I'm wondering if any of the pilots um, or studies that you're following have talked about that at all? They haven't yet, but that I think is a really exciting kind of new frontier for evidence on this front. Because, you know, we talked earlier about the idea of cash um, allowing people to breathe and perhaps engage um, in civic activities more. And I don't know about both of you, but I have a I have a feeling that we're really in a, what I would describe as sort of a downswing sort of in our society. There's a wonderful book uh, called The Upswing published a few years ago by Robert Putnam, who's been kind of a pioneer in this uh, realm of social capital, the trust, the bonds of trust that connect us. And in that book, he sort of tracks what he describes as the we era, then the downswing to the the me era. Uh, One from a collective sense of collective society and obligation and support to each other to one where we're taking care of ourselves. And he really tracked kind of the mid-century as sort of the height of a sense of collective kind of shared prosperity and shared futures. And then in the 60s, late 60s, 70s, we start to see a lot of indicators, uh, economic and otherwise, sort of decline uh, in a downswing. So I'm excited about the idea that cash might be able to play a role, probably not a silver bullet role, but a role nonetheless in reducing people's sense of scarcity and open them up to engage with others. I will say that for all of the proliferation of these pilots, and I think I haven't looked at the map today on our website, but I think there's at least 40 active pilots right now. Uh, There are more in the pipeline. All the evidence from the rigorous studies of many of those pilots haven't arrived yet. Uh, In fact, I just saw a, I think I mentioned an unpublished uh, report from one of them that's going to be made public in a week or so. That's the first of these recent pilots. And then over the next six months, we've got uh, reports from one, two, three, four different cities that are going to be really really important because they'll be the first sort of chunk of evidence we have. Because uh, right now we're tracking primarily spending data, which I think goes some ways to sort of counter these notions that low-income people are not deserving uh, and that they wasted on drugs and alcohol and tobacco and gambling, all these kind of deeply entrenched harmful narratives, often racialized and gender narratives, right? Uh, so I think it's disproving that But I think what's going to be exciting is we can go beyond that and really uh, to all those domains we just spoke about where there's 
positive outcomes in Africa uh, and from the 70s in Asia and Latin America. Uh, we'll see in North America, I think, some, some more recent evidence. Well, that's really exciting. Um, and actually, on the spending issue, I was going to ask you about that. Um, what what are the findings so far in terms of how people are spending the money that they're receiving in these studies? It's very boring. Uh, because, <laughs> uh, and that, I say that with, with all the best intentions. Uh, it's people really spending it on the things that all of us spend money on primarily, utilities, food, housing, clothing. So there's no real shocks there. And I'll be honest, I think there was some trepidation about even presenting spending data because I think there's some concern that it might play into the notion that we should be scrutinizing people's spending anyway. Because one of arguably one of the most powerful principles of UBI or even basic income that's not universal is the unconditionality, right? Because the evidence decade, going back decades tells us that most people, most of the time, spend it in a way that's most essential to them. And it's on those fundamental things I just mentioned. So that's the boring sort of breaking news from the spending data. And interestingly, since we launched the dashboard of all these pilots last September, there's been more than 55 news articles that have come out almost entirely positive. I mean, it's really shocking and it makes me a little nervous actually that there's not more criticism and worry about these pilots. But again, I think that's partly a feature of coming out of the pandemic and kind of recasting what hash can mean for people. The zeitgeist is ready for it. <laughs> totally, totally. It's time has come. Um, now, if we had the political system and dynamics to kind of push something through, I think that's the, the next frontier. It does seem like there's some progress happening on that front as well, though, in terms of like, certainly, I mean, I haven't been following the American case as much, but in Canada, there's like a number of cities that have passed resolutions and the Senate here is doing a thing on universal basic income. So it feels like at least here, there's a, a moment. Is that something that's sort of captured more widely, do you think? Yeah, I definitely, I think you're right. There is the zeitgeist uh, at the moment is, is definitely in certainly basic income's favor, if not UBI. I think there is, we are at a moment where real pilots are really happening and the child tax credit and other child kind of um, assistance programs during covid kind of demonstrated that cash is powerful. But I think that's sort of masked a debate about whether targeted versus universal is the best path forward. Um, and I think there's really compelling arguments for both. And it's a false binary to say that universal social policy is always good and targeted is always bad or vice versa. But I think what may be holding back Delivering, you know, basic income social policy at this stage are a lot of concerns about how it's paid for and what the implications are for what what that strategy is. So, what's interesting interesting about Alaska and Norway, for that matter, is they have oil reserves, and so they set up these funds uh, into which profits from those oil resources have flowed, and then the market has grown those funds, and those funds then pay out to individuals. I don't think we want to place a bet on fossil fuels, but maybe there are other resources like um, land. Uh, Canada has massive <laughs> amounts of public land. You know, could you lease that land in a way that's sustainable, uh, that could generate income uh, and create a fund that then through market means kind of grows and pays out to individuals? Obviously, taxation is where most people go when they think about paying for it. And while there's broad support for curtailing 
the income and wealth of rich people, um, the political dynamic doesn't necessarily follow. What's interesting is many of these pilots, they're going to sunset probably in the next year or two because where they're happening at the municipal level, meaning the local government level, those local governments typically don't have the revenue to sustain a large-scale cash policy like that. There are a number of cases in the U.S. where I think cities are going to find funding to sustain their pilots to some degree, but it won't be very large-scale. Chicago is one example. San Francisco, where wealth inequality is off the charts, um, there's a real appetite to tax wealth and to tax the businesses of the wealthy. So you might see, as was attempted last year, but pulled right before the election, you might see a ballot initiative that seeks to tax big box retail, read Amazon uh, and other big retailers like that, and generate income that could pay out uh, a basic income. And I think the estimate in San Francisco was that that kind of tax could generate 26 to $30 million a year, US dollars a year. Wouldn't be for the whole city, obviously, but that's a pretty large amount of money for a city to sustain a basic income. So we may see that surface, but that's not going to happen in, in even in Toronto or other towns across North America. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, like for somebody that doesn't know a lot about UBI pilots, can you just maybe explain like what they look like and how they work? <laughs> yeah, so I'll break it down. Typically, they're, they're a local government in, in city, county, or other kind of jurisdiction um, will identify a funding source. Um, during COVID, interestingly, federal governments often provided funding to municipal governments, and they have found ways to use that. So in the U.S. context, a lot of the pilots have been funded by these large-scale infrastructure or other legislation. Uh, That money is now running out, but it's there. And the rules were such that city governments or county governments could use them to, to fund their pilots. Then they would typically, well, I won't say typically, what Stockton modeled for many of these pilots, Stockton, California, is to engage the community right away. Start talking about what this could mean for them. Start talking about how it was unconditional. Say that again and again and again, because people just don't believe it. And many people actually think it's a scam. So you really need to kind of work with the community and work with community ambassadors to sort of convey that this is a real thing, but it's not a large thing. Uh, And what that means is, even if you have a large group of people who are eligible based on some eligibility criteria, geographic, um, income, what have you, you won't have enough money to provide the basic income to all of those people. So again, what Stockton modeled and what other cities have sort of taken forward is this idea of a lottery. Now you could say a lottery is sort of a bad uh, parallel because it kind of just emphasizes this sort of capriciousness of life, right? I mean, we've in some sense, we could argue in North America, we've won the life lottery, right? We're not in some other country that's um, very low income and a struggle to live in. Nonetheless, the lottery, everyone gets. They kind of understand that you put your name in and then it's chance whether you get it. So then names are pulled from that lottery process and communicated uh, to the folks who won the lottery that they're going to get this payment. Typically, there is a community organization that does the communication with the community and promotes the pilot, talks about it, uh, gathers feedback from people, community members about it. There is typically a uh, for-profit or non-profit entity that provides the money. 
So it often, so far, it doesn't typically come directly from government, but it comes from government or a nonprofit to a firm that specializes in that. And typically, it's been through a prepaid debit card or a bank transfer. Uh, but of course, it could be through Venmo, it could be through Cash App, it could be through a whole host of other channels. And that initial engagement with the community is provides an opportunity to design with the community for the community, right? To identify what what do they use, what would be most helpful. But I think what's what's important to note is that in that community-driven de- design process, providing what I would describe as kind of choice architecture is important. That is sort of framing what basic income is and framing kind of what the evidence and the experience suggests are the best choices to choose from. So we know that giving people paper checks is now a very bad idea because they're easy to get lost. They're easy for people to get cheated out of. And those who don't have a bank account, and many low-income people don't because they don't trust banks because banks typically have treated them terribly, they will go to a check cashier. And to do that means a huge fee is going to be taken out of that amount. So as much as community members may say they want paper checks, um, I think it's our responsibility as researchers and to pilot implementers to sort of lay out the options and find ones that can work for them that don't leave them being kind of preyed upon. And then the payments start flowing. Uh, And typically the debit card or the the bank transfer or other means have a way of identifying what those payments, what the payments to individuals are being spent on. And that's presented in an aggregated way so that we don't know what one individual is spending on versus another individual. And that's what the dashboard spending data that I mentioned earlier kind of reflects uh, all those monthly transactions. And then some of the pilots don't have any rigorous evaluation. Most of them do. Uh, And, you know, we asked the question earlier, how many pilots do you really need with all this positive evidence before you say, okay, good enough, let's move ahead. I think you could also say the same about evaluation. (laughs) Um, Rigorous evaluations like randomized control trial evaluations, which has a control group and then people that get the money are very invasive. And I I say that in a, try to say that in a matter of fact way, but it means the fidelity of that research design is really important because if it's not done very carefully, then people will question the outcomes later on and it will all be a waste of time and money. But what that means is it can be very invasive and uh, it means that you need responses from participants. Fortunately, I think uh, we've set good precedent in modern times for basic income pilots where people can opt out. Unconditionality is taken to the point of, you know, you can get the money and walk away. Uh, No questions asked. You don't have to provide spending data, no other survey data. Most people do participate, though. So the early part of any pilot planning will also require kind of a rigorous evaluation planning and how it's going to be integrated and managed. And importantly, how community members are going to feed into that evaluation. So it's not purely extractive, but it feels like they have a stake in it. So for example, can they help design the survey questions? Can they make sure the wording in the survey questions are attuned to the language used in that community? Can they actually take a look at the findings and offer insights about what the interpretations of those findings are before they go public, right? Can they inform the report before it even goes to uh, the media or anyone else? Um, I think there are a lot of ways that researchers are becoming much more sensitive to working with communities rather than kind of extracting from communities. Oh, and I missed one, one important step early on. 
during the design phase, that's also the point which pilots have to really figure out how they're going to equip, effectively equip participants to make good choices about whether to receive the money or not. Because what we haven't talked about very much yet, aside from bashing public benefits, because they, they deserve a bashing, is as much as those benefits are really important to people who are on them, losing them can be catastrophic. And getting new a in, new influx of cash, whether it's from a job or from this thing called a basic income pilot, can undermine your eligibility for all these benefits. Um, and wouldn't it be a shame if you unknowingly did that? So I think uh, what sound practice has been accepted now is the idea of kind of benefits navigators or counselors. Um, again, not obligatory, completely voluntary, but they can help people make the right choice. And some people do opt out. They say, actually, I, now that I understand this, I don't want it because it will undermine my eligibility for housing assistance or something else. And then I think you end the pilot by really sort of offboarding. If you onboard people in the beginning, you offboard them by helping them kind of identify uh, ways in which they can maintain their existing benefits and perhaps identify other resources in the community if if they didn't have those already. Wow, that's really interesting. And I hadn't really thought about all of those strategies that they'd need to apply for a lot of the ethical issues that you identified that seems like they're really robust strategies for. So that's that's really great to hear. One thing that I am curious about, especially because of your background, um, having worked in the city of San Francisco, as you'd mentioned, a lot of these pilots are sort of at the local level. And I'm wondering if you've got any thoughts on sort of like why that is? Is it just that there were sort of like pots of money that got used? Or is there something about universal basic income that especially appeals to cities? Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, as much as we can get really frustrated with lawmakers at the federal level because they're stuck and they can't get along and they can't get things passed, it's it's often argued that mayors or other elected officials at the local level don't really have that luxury. They've got streets that need to be filled. They've got bike lanes to build. They've got just all these very practical things that mean a lot in people's day-to-day lives that they have to respond to, or they're out. Hopefully they're out. With that, actually, I think also comes um, an opportunity to sort of be laboratories for municipal innovation, to kind of go down a path that hasn't been gone down before or go down in a different way to sort of prove out whether it's possible at the city level level to do something that helps residents. And so I think of local governments as sort of laboratories that can demonstrate what's possible. And I think what's really interesting about Stockton, California, um, this underdog city, it really, the city and in particular, the former mayor, Michael Tubbs, demonstrated what's possible. And he's a charismatic leader who then rallied for it. And you just saw this kind of sweeping adoption across the United States in places that I never would have thought could find the means or the political will to do that. So it's pretty, pretty shocking. And it's, it's nice to be shocked in that way, kind of in 2023. And so I would describe Stockton as sort of this positive deviant, this, this city that really took a path that was seemed kind of radical and now seems really matter of fact. And when I was in the city in kind of San Francisco, I was working on securing funding for a large-scale pilot in New Haven, Connecticut, Detroit, and San Francisco. Uh, We didn't get the funding. I went to something much more worthy, I think, that was more practical. But at that point, it was very sensitive politically, even in the city of San Francisco. So, you know, fast forward, now the city of San Francisco has 
four, five, six pilots. Um, there's sort of a groundbreaking sort of local government. And California has, has had around 40 pilots. It has almost a third of all the pilots in the United States. So I think California, like local government, California itself sees itself as sort of a pioneer um, demonstrating what's possible. Yeah, I'm wondering sort of like looking forward at this moment where there's a lot of energy for universal basic income, do you have any sort of like advice um, or suggestions for what governments or even, you know, UBI advocates, like what makes for good UBI design in your view? Ah, well, I think that's the question that is probably the hardest to get to. I think the principles are, are attraction to many people, even kind of libertarian politicians in decades past have sort of held up this idea that UBI is something that could be really useful for government of course, provided you wiped out all the other social safety net programs. So I think one kind of guiding principle would need to be um, that any UBI that's introduced doesn't leave people worse off. We could certainly repurpose some existing benefits. We could probably do away with some, but I think you have to tread very carefully uh, in sort of navigating the existing uh, safety net with a UBI and look for ways in which it can be complementary uh, to the existing system rather than sort of a, a wholesale replacement, because I think we already know that that's apt to leave many people worse off. And then I think you're going to need to find a way, a path that can fund it, that doesn't have to have everyone on board because that's impossible, but would have to have a large number of people on board, including a large number of lawmakers who kind of see a stake in this and a political path that they can push. And again, maybe it will take another crisis, uh, right? When crisis happens, sometimes, obviously a lot of bad things happen, but this window of opportunity opens uh, that you never could have anticipated. And I think it allows us to view positive social change less as a linear line you know, over time, but something that just spikes in a given decade uh, or a given year uh, during COVID. And you need to be ready with big ideas to go through that window, right? Uh, so I think what's interesting is leading up to COVID, there's, there is certainly a global movement of people talking about UBI. And in some circles, I think there's a lot of thought about what could this look like if we could really put it into play. COVID, of course, presented a scenario that no one anticipated. Nonetheless, I think some of the thinking about what it could be was ready. And I think that's a good lesson for any bold, new, progressive social policy. It needs to gestate and you need to be thinking about what it could look like because you never know when that window is going to open um, and the opportunity is going to present itself. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a really good point. I've just been thinking a lot about like how climate change makes life a lot more uncertain. Um, and I'm wondering if, like, have there been conversations about climate change in the context of UBI? And sort of, if so, what, what have they been about? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's almost there's almost no realm in which UBI doesn't find like a foothold uh, because there's always someone thinking about it, particularly among really opinionated advocates. But I think climate change presents another case in which where unconditional cash can be a really powerful means to equip people to adapt. What's really interesting, and it took me a while to kind of fully grasp this, is that sometimes, for example, in a high cost place, like on the West Coast of Canada or the West Coast of the United States or the East Coast, for that matter, leaving that region might be the wisest thing you can do um, financially. But to move costs a lot of money. Um, you need a lump sum of money 
you need to save that up or you need to give it to you. And I think it's there's a parallel here in terms of climate change for those who are in regions where they're more vulnerable to uh, the impact of climate change. And so cash, I think, can play a role in helping people relocate some limited ways to adapt at the margins around kind of the type of house they have or the type of heating or things of that sort. I wouldn't want to overstate that because climate change is a big, scary problem that needs big, bold solutions among governments and others and the private sector. But I think there there is a way in which money, unconditional cash can give us all just more options and more flexibility. And I'll leave with one one last kind of related point here. I think to the extent that lawmakers can feel like they can anticipate very specific threats, they enact laws to address those threats. However, um, if you're like me, this is a moment that feels very uncertain. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. It, it really creates a lot of anxiety. And I think what could be powerful about UBI is that rather than a prescriptive policy that's meant to address something very, you're very confident is going to come, unconditional cash can be a generalized response, a generalized sort of bulwark against the unanticipated crisis. In that sense, it could be really perceived as a very powerful futures policy, one that really doesn't presume to know what's going to come in the future and what crises are going to come, but understands that people need to be ready when it does to cope and cash that you can use on anything that is attuned to that moment could be it. Yeah. And also just if people aren't driving three hours to San Francisco to work every day, I mean, like, let's get some cars off the road. Well, okay. I I have one final question for you. Uh, I'm going to lend you a magic wand. With this magic wand, you can uh, make UBI roll out overnight in exactly the way that you would love to see it. It's a magic wand. What would you like to see? What like what would happen tomorrow if you could make it happen tomorrow? This might seem a little um, disappointing, but I think in the American context, um, unconditional cash to parents is kind of stretches the definition of UBI. But I think providing unconditional cash to to all parents could go so far to address so many points of anxiety um, and struggles right now. Even among kind of middle and upper middle class families, I think whether it's childcare or whether it's um, schooling or commuting or all kinds of things, the evidence is just so powerful and clear. And those impacts are felt and evident at the level of the child. So it's just too compelling to give up before kind of talking about this something much more radical and bold that would kind of bypass that. So and if I only have the magic wand for one thing, I'm afraid that's what I'd have to say it is. I'm not disappointed with that answer at all. I think that's fantastic. And thank you so much for joining us today. I I love this conversation. We were so excited to have it and we're really pleased that you were able to make it with us. Well, it was great fun. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thank you yeah, so thank much. Thank you so much. 